Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. Where is white privilege? When I was a teenager and going to youth group at our church, we, like most youth groups, did a wide range of activities. We went whitewater rafting and we played games. We did joint activities with other churches and their youth groups. We had Bible study and, of course, we ate lots of pizza. But there was one activity that was my all-time favorite. Every so often, our youth group leader would invite an ethicist from the local university, the University of Tennessee, to come and lead our program He'd bring these short, typed-out, not-even-quarter-page-long scenarios for us to read, discuss, and debate. The first one we ever discussed was the spaceship scenario. You probably know this one. Something's going to happen that will kill all human life on Earth, and you are capable of taking 10 people into a spaceship, and they will be the only ones to survive. They will be the future of the human race. Now, the question is this. Who do you choose and why? What seemed like a simple question raised all sorts of ethical dilemmas once we began to look at our answers. Did we make our choice by beauty, intelligence, gender, race, wealth, friendship, family? In the end, it says a great deal about our own silent but entrenched value systems. And sometimes those Silent value systems, the ones we aren't aware of, were not the ones we would have claimed as being our guiding forces. I enjoyed this process so much that once I was ordained and doing youth work myself, this was one of the first activities I wanted to do with the youth group. Now, when I was a high school kid doing this activity, I remember the answers given by others in these ethical discussions but only insofar as they shed light on my own answer. As an adult leading the group, I was far more in tune with what the kids were saying, and I learned something. Teenagers are situational ethicists. When discussing ethics, they were very likely to say they couldn't define any universal boundaries or moral principles because every situation— and its ethics, can only be decided in the moment. They would argue no behaviors are inherently right or wrong. Only the context makes them so. Often, everyone in the group would agree that with this philosophy, and I in turn would begin to challenge them and push back a little bit, eventually saying to them, so you're saying that there are some situations in which it is morally right to microwave a baby to death. They would be horrified by the example and say, well, of course not. Well, perhaps there are maybe a few absolutes, but generally they still held their ground. Ethics are only determined by the situation. When I had just graduated from college, I enjoyed the new phase of life in which no longer having to read for school Reading suddenly became a lot more pleasurable. I rediscovered it as being wonderful and delightful, and I would find a new author or series and ravenously read everything I could get my hands on by that author. One such author was Isaac Asimov, and one of the novels I read by him 
that interestingly was published before I was even born, left quite an impression on me. It's the story of a planet called Solaria, where a small outcropping of humanity has settled. It's a farm planet that supplies Earth and other planets where humans live, and the farming is entirely mechanized, so there's very little need for a sizable population, and so the total population of this planet has stabilized at just 20,000 residents spread across the entire planet. To put that in perspective, that averages out to about one person every 10,000 square miles. And because of this, the planet is so extremely sparsely populated, most of the population can go their entire lives potentially without seeing another human in person. But they do have internet. They don't call it internet, but that's what it is. And the screens in their home are the size of an entire wall. And actually, that's not correct. Actually, the entire wall is the screen. The part of the novel that struck me was the strange sociological idiosyncrasy that developed on this planet. For them, there was a strong difference between what they called viewing as opposed to what they called seeing. Seeing is what happens for them when two individuals were in the same room. This happened rarely, though, and was so intimate a situation that people would be cautious, guarded, formal in these situations, and eventually they even began to avoid the intimacy and discomfort caused by seeing altogether, meaning avoided actually being in the physical presence of others. So most of the social life between individuals was what they called viewing. It was on video screens. And the inhabitants of this world had a whole different set of moral and sociological rules for viewing. They'd even be willing to change clothes while on screen, thinking nothing of being disrobed in front of someone on screen, even though they would never do this if they were actually in the same room with the person. Now, this book was published in 1957, long before personal computers or the internet, and I read it in 1984, before my first personal computer and just about the time the beginnings of the internet were being created, but long before the average person had any awareness of it, let alone used it in their daily lives. And yet, the story struck me as so powerful that I've never forgotten it and have been amazed at what an accurate prediction it turned out to be of our current time. Which brings us up to today. We live in a time when people will send pictures of themselves to other people that depict them in ways they would never consider allowing the same person to see in real life. We live in a time in which people are willing to live out aspects of their lives electronically in ways they would never do so in person. Now, whenever I become a part of a discussion such as this, someone says, I know what's wrong with young people. And I want to be immediately clear that that is not what I'm saying. Yes, when Facebook was really taking off with high school kids in the mid-2000s, there were lots of problems with kids posting pictures that later came back to haunt them. But if you read the news today, it's far more common to have young people chastising their parents for posting pictures of their children without the 
teenagers consent. And again, despite the temptation to blame this on the younger generation, I will say that in my role supervising staff through the years, it's not just the young people. And even, interestingly, it is more often the older people who will send a work email from home late at night that they would never have sent during the day or as a letter. There's something about using the internet from the privacy and confines of our own home that lures us to act without following the same moral or social structures that we would normally have in place for ourselves. So guess what? Teenagers and 20-somethings are not the only one with situational ethics. As a general rule, the people of our society behave as if there are different moral rules for the internet than there are for our lives when we're interacting with people in person. We're all, I think, aware of this, particularly if you have a Facebook account. Just think about the ways that people react to each other's posts, ways that many of them would never do face-to-face. And there are so many examples of this. I love to scuba dive, and I really enjoy taking underwater photographs as well. I learned quickly that on the Internet, as a diver, you never post a picture of your gear or yourself in your gear because other divers online will ridicule you and dissect every aspect of how you have your equipment set up. Which is strange because in all my shipboard scuba dives with lots of strangers, I've never had anyone react in that same way in person. We have become a society that increasingly differentiates between viewing, again, meaning what we read and watch online, and seeing, which is what we experience in person. We have different ethics we apply to the viewing and the seeing aspects of our lives. Now, why does this matter? Well, in a world where we live fairly segregated lives, most of us have surprisingly little sustained, personal, meaningful relationships with people who differ from us. The consequence of this is that we are only seeing people who are like us. And what we learn and think we know about people who differ from us, well, that's done through viewing. It's hard to look at our world today and not be slapped in the face by the issue of racism. I've seen surveys recently showing that in our nation, the vast majority of people agree that racism is wrong. And then we as a society tolerate disturbing forms of racial hatred to be fomented online. This is perhaps the ultimate and disturbing example of situational ethics, which lays bare the hypocrisy between what we say in one place and do in another. On March 7, 1965, a group of about 600 protesters began a march between Selma and Montgomery, Alabama, to protest the violation of their constitutional rights. The local sheriff, Jim Clark, who was famous for having used mounted KKK members as a posse to deny blacks their voting rights, on this occasion he called for all white males over the age of 21 to show up at the courthouse to be deputized. This newly formed mob then descended upon the protest marchers. The marchers were attacked 
on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. The television and newspaper images of this attack were so brutal and disturbing that President Lyndon Johnson issued an immediate statement deploring the brutality with which the marchers were treated and, as a response, he committed to sending the voting rights bill to Congress within the week. It was the viewing of these images that finally sparked a turning point for the civil rights movement. Back then, these images helped spur a change in public sentiment and legislation. Fifty-five years later, the images have become so common that we seem to have become desensitized to what we are viewing. We watch the story of a young black man out for a jog who's chased down and murdered by three white men. He's done no crime. He was simply pursued because he was jogging and black. We watch a black man being arrested. He's handcuffed, restrained on the ground with a knee on his neck, not until he's cuffed, but until he is dead. We have literally watched a man die. Millions upon millions have viewed it. But we aren't really seeing it. There are two issues which are frequently talked about in terms of race. They are difficult and they make us uncomfortable, and yet they are so important to understand. They are police bias and white privilege. And both of these are troublesome for many white people. And they are, I'll say for me as well, because I admit I don't walk through life being particularly aware of either one of them. But there was a recent story that laid bare both of these issues so clearly that I thought I would revisit it in hopes of helping us see the double standard within our nation. I'm sure you know most of the details of this story. But as a recap, Christian Cooper, an African-American New Yorker who's an avid bird watcher, was walking through Central Park in a section that's one of his favorite for bird watching. It's an area where dogs are required to be on leash, but it's not unheard of for owners to ignore the regulation. So he did what he'd done before. He politely asked the woman who was walking through this area with her dog off leash to place it back on leash. She refused. What happened next is so telling. She told him that she was going to call the police and say, quote, I'm going to tell them that an African-American man is threatening my life, end quote. This one sentence says it all. Implied in this, without any leaping to conclusion at all, is that when she tells the police she's fearful from her life around a black man, they will know she's also implying she's white. Let's be clear her threat was clearly untrue. If you're genuinely afraid for your life, you don't threaten the person you're afraid of with a phone call, you flee. Her willingness to stand pat and threaten to call the police meant that she believed all the power was on her side. She believed with all her heart that two things were true. One, she would be protected by the police because she was white, and Two, he would be in trouble with the police because he was black. If you're white, 
you may not have any sense or awareness of white privilege. And that's not surprising. That's why this story is so helpful in helping us to learn. Notice, this is a story in which it is the white parson who is claiming and attempting to live out white privilege as well as depending upon police racial bias. Oh, she doesn't call them those things. She doesn't use the terms white privilege or racial bias, but she doesn't have to. I imagine you are already aware of this story. If you're white, let me ask you a question. When you first heard this story, did you see it for a clear moment of a white person claiming privilege and depending upon police bias? Most white people didn't when they read this story. But I guarantee you every black person who encountered this story sure did because they've encountered it so many times. We've gotten to the point where we spend so much of our lives viewing that we're not really seeing what is happening. We are spectators of the show of life, sitting in our homes, writing Facebook reviews of the performances of others, rather than seeing ourselves as part of the world and very much having a say that determines where the plot will go next. Several years ago, there were bracelets that were popular for Christians. They had four letters on them, WWJD. They have since kind of become a bit of a joke, but they're not a bad question for me as a Christian to ask myself in a moment like this. What would Jesus do? What would my faith say to me in a moment like this? What would Jesus do for those of us who are Christians? Well, if we look to Scripture for the answer, there's no better place to look than at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is baptized by John, goes into the wilderness to prepare himself, and when Jesus emerges, he, in essence, announces his public ministry at a synagogue in Nazareth. He's invited to read from Scripture. So he reads from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And what does he choose to read as an announcement of his ministry? These are the words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We live in a society that has too many people oppressed and too many others blind to the oppression. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, our Savior says. That Spirit is calling me to set the oppressed free and to grant the ability to really see to those who are blind. And all of God's children said, Amen. That's all for today. On your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Please feel free to get in touch with me through email or Twitter. 
Both are SkyPilot with three T's, S-K-Y-P-I-L-O-T-T-T. That's SkyPilot at gmail.com. And my Twitter is at SkyPilot. Thanks for listening to SkyPilot FaithQuest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions. <laughs>